Kelly. Josh. How many episodes do you think that most podcasts produce before they fail? That's an interesting question. I do look up specific subject areas on Apple Podcasts because I want to like listen to more French podcasts or listen to ones about, I don't know, gardening. And it seems like this one posted its last episode in 2019 and it only posted like two or three. That's a pretty common story. So I'd say, I don't know, a dozen. (laughs) That's because you're looking up podcasts that are in French about gardening. Not all the time. Some of those, yes, but not all the time. Well, the answer is actually seven. Hmm. Most podcasts quit after seven episodes, and 92% of podcasters quit within six months of launching. Well, we definitely beat both of those figures by quite a bit, which makes today a pretty special day. Do you want to tell our listeners what today is? Today is our, our anniversary, Josh. Our podcast oh. <laughs> anniversary. <laughs> We've been doing this for a year. Yeah, today is our 52nd episode and the one year mark of the release of Indubitably. That's bananas. I cannot believe we have been yelling at each other for a year. <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised you put up with me for this long. I am too. <laughs> that doesn't bode well for the next year. <laughs> We've got an interesting episode lined up for you all today. But before we get to that, we thought we would take just a bit of time to reflect on the first year of this show. And I thought that it would be a good chance to look back on our trailer episode and identify a couple of the goals that we laid out then so long ago and ask the question, did we succeed? What are some of the challenges we have faced? And what are we hoping to do about it moving forward? Wow, it's going to be interesting to look that far back. I was definitely still in my mid-30s when we started this thing, and I'm pretty much in my late 30s now, and that's only been a year. (laughs) I'm not sure how that works, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) One of our goals that we identified in the trailer episode, which is a bit weird to listen to, honestly, I did re-listen to the whole thing before the show, and um, we we weren't as bad as I thought we were going to be, I'll say that. That's probably pretty generous. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you don't know how bad I thought it was going to be. Oh, okay. So one of our goals was to present all viewpoints on each of the topics that we discuss. And it was important to us and is still important to use the term all viewpoints as as opposed to both viewpoints, which is typically how debates are thought of, at least in the American context, oftentimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of the issues we discuss have many different stances on it, but I wouldn't say that we cover all viewpoints because there's some pretty bananas viewpoints out there, but we do a pretty good job of being comprehensive. All right, let's caveat that all legitimate viewpoints. Sure. We're going to get a few flat earthers who probably are going to be really mad that we've been excluding them Mm -hmm. from the legitimacy category, but there you go. That's our like three, four star ratings that we've received. Oh, so I'm not sure how well I think we've been doing on this one. I, I think we've we've certainly made an effort to include as many viewpoints as possible, but we've almost never had an episode without me having a conversation afterwards that made me think of something that we missed in that episode. Hmm. I suppose those are opportunities for us to try to be more comprehensive when we prepare. 
but also give us some options for ways that we can expand the discussion later. That phenomenon, I suppose, of, of me going through the, damn it, we didn't talk about this particular argument, reaction to our episodes, it happens less, I've noticed, when we have guests on the show. I don't think at any point you or I have pretended to be experts on the majority of the things we cover. We, we do our work researching. We try to be comprehensive in our preparation for each episode. But it's certainly helpful when we have somebody on the show that is a legitimate expert in the thing that it is we're talking about. That's true. And we have learned so much from the guests that we've had. Different points we never considered before. People who have genuine expertise in these subject areas, and maybe not specifically debate backgrounds, have been such great additions to our discussion. We are also always looking for more people with more expertise to join us in these conversations. And perhaps some of our listeners today would be interested in taking part in the future. This definitely falls under the category of what are we hoping to do moving forward? We would love to have more people on the show as guests. I think it would be amazing if we could have an expert on every episode, every topic that we cover. And I don't want our listeners to be shy over pitching us an idea, whether you want to come on for that episode or not. We are always on the hunt for interesting topics. And in our own personal life experiences, we just don't know everything. And there's probably so much out there that could make for really interesting discussion. We, we just don't know about yet. Right. It's the old phrase of, we don't know what we don't know, whether that be potential episode ideas, arguments within episodes, or just the experiences that different people have with the various topics that we discuss. So I know that we put out, probably obnoxiously so, we put out our social handles and our email address at IndubitablyPod on Facebook and Twitter and IndubitablyPodcast at gmail.com on every episode. And I hope that our listeners don't feel hesitant to utilize those resources and reach out to us and pitch us ideas because we are definitely open to them. And that's not just lip service. Another goal that we outlined was facilitating discussion. One of the things that we probably should do that we had some trouble with is ourselves being more active on social media and getting not just promotional tweets for our episodes out there, but actually engaging in discussion outside the the bounds of the podcast itself. One of the main challenges of the show, and Kelly can attest to this, is wrestling with the length of it. A, a one-hour podcast, which is what most of our episodes are, is a bit on the longer side. The average length of podcast is 30 to, to 35 minutes. We're almost double that. But even with an hour, that's just the starting point for most of the issues that we discuss. You, you can't talk comprehensively about something like uh, critical race theory in an hour. And I think that, like Kelly, you're saying, we could be using our social media as a place to branch out the discussions that start in our episodes. While we've been definitely committed to the show itself over the last year, I think we've got that pretty much nailed. So now we can start committing ourselves more actively to having these discussions happen outside the show on all of our social media platforms. Which hopefully will serve as a an additional resource for our listeners who 
hear about the topics through the show itself, want to know more about it, and now have a place to go to fill in the gaps of argumentation and information that we honestly just don't have time to cover in a show where we have to prioritize what content we think is most important to fill an hour. We don't expect any of you to sit here and start listening to a three-hour episode (laughs) once a week. Also, it would make my day if you got into an argument with Josh back and forth on Twitter or on Facebook. So make make that dream come true for me. Oh my gosh. Kelly just likes to listen to me lose arguments. <laughs> yeah. And I guess the last big way that we failed, throwing this one out there, in our introduction episode, we promised an answer to the question, is a hot dog a sandwich? That is our white whale of an argument. <laughs> we have not yet answered that question. We did cover pineapple on pizza, but we didn't get is a hot dog a sandwich. I guess... That will be what we have to do in year two. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. We promised a cool episode for you today for our anniversary. And I think in the spirit of looking back, that's exactly what we'll be doing on today's show. Instead of the last year of Indubitably, though, we'll be looking back over the last 100 years of debate. That's a bold claim. How exactly are we going to be doing that? Well, I've got two things for you. I've got a book and I've got a Carl. What is a Carl? (laughs) A Carl is a clinical development oncology scientist by day. That's boring. Probably saves lives, but boring. And an amateur astronomer, gamer, theologian by night, and an animal lover for all time in between. Much more interesting. And apparently he's also weirdly into dams. What do you mean by that, Carl? The bigger and the more stoic, the better. Hoover Dam, San Dimas Dam, all the dams in between. (laughs) All right. Well, we appreciate you sitting patiently and listening to us get all introspective but I'm glad you are here and ready to join us for the rest of the episode. Welcome to Indubitably. Thank you very much. I'm curious to hear about this book that you say you've got. Ah, yes. So I've got a book and a Carl. We've we've covered the Carl, and the book is called The Debater's Treasury. It was published in 1914 and is essentially a collection of 200 different debate topics with some Brief arguments for the affirmative and negative of each. Who let you have a book that old? Oh my gosh. Okay. So (laughs) you say that. I'm actually, as I read it, I'm holding it right now. I'm terrified turning the pages because I feel it's just going to disintegrate in my hands. And I'm assuming that this book, being a hundred something years old, is probably written by a bunch of white guys and is probably pretty regressive. Oh, we're going to we're going to get to some of the topics that they covered <laughs> throughout this episode. Old white guys in positions of power, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I actually think it's fascinating though, criticisms aside, to see some of the issues that they were considering back then and compare it to now. Like what's neat to me is to look at exactly how these topics have aged. Some are completely irrelevant now, like resolved that men will ultimately succeed in navigating the air by means of flying machines. I like the idea that they called them flying machines. And I'm imagining that it was just like a motor that somehow became airborne with like 
no propellers, nothing. I'm thinking steampunk with propellers that are all around a giant blimp with uh, half cyborgs walking around on it in 1908 garb. Tons of gears and top hats. (laughs) (laughs) Don't forget the monocle. I bet you even if they thought that we would successfully fly through the air by means of flying machines, they could not have predicted the price of a first class ticket or how little legroom we have back in economy class. (laughs) Truth. We know what flight is now and some of the pros and cons of flight and some idea of where science will take us. But what were some of the arguments they were making about this at the time? This is where I think the book is cool. One, it's cool to look at the topics that they were discussing and two, just the way that they were arguing it. So on the affirmative that we will ultimately succeed in navigating the air, they say the birds fly, showing us that it is possible thus to carry heavy bodies through the air. Look at the progress of inventions, all of which have been thought impossible before they were devised. Why should a flying machine be less probable than a locomotive, a printing press, a telephone, or a phonograph? On the negative side, they say the air is a different field from that which has witnessed the triumph of man's skill. Man's skill. Balloons are at the mercy of the wind so that they cannot be steered or propelled effectively. The ocean has not yet been completely governed. The air would be a thousand times more dangerous. Powerful machines are always very heavy, and weight would require more power. Innumerable attempts, always ending in failure, demonstrate the impossibility of flying. I don't know. Reasonable arguments on both sides. If I took the negative on that at the time, I would say you can't prove that birds aren't magic. Also sort of reminded me of Arthur C. Clarke. He said that any technology that's sufficiently advanced is magic as far as we're concerned. And at that time, I think that applies. If you were to tell somebody at the time that this book was authored, that there would be a way for you to instantaneously communicate with somebody across the planet, they'd probably think you were pretty crazy too. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable how much we've been able to accomplish in that amount of time. And I think as much as it's easy for us to make fun of them for their question about flying machines, we're asking questions right now about artificial intelligence, about space exploration, about technology that we're not sure whether or not it will come to fruition. And probably 100 years from now, people are going to be laughing at us in the same way. That's exactly right. The rise of the machines, if you believe some futurists, uh, is not possible, but inevitable. So it's just an interesting idea that if we've come that far in about 100 years and you consider that technological advancements increase at an exponential rate, we'll be even more divorced from the 100 years from now than we were are rather from the 100 years from then. So you're saying we're going to sound even dumber than they do. That's correct. Damn it. <laughs> well, considering how much time has passed and the inevitable progress that that has led to. I'm interested in some of the arguments that they have had that were definitely not controversies we even want to consider anymore or issues we've definitely moved past altogether. Yeah. So, I mean, arguing about planes is one thing, but (laughs) there are some topics in here that I know Kelly's not going to be a huge fan of, such as The races of African or Asian origin are inferior to Europeans, or women are intellectually inferior to men. These are debates that they were having uh, very seriously 100 years ago. Yikes. I, I would hope we're not still having those arguments. But then again, I've met some of the other Americans I share the country with. So who knows? 
it just blows my mind, even in context that we're talking about Jim Crow era thinking. And this was prior to women's suffrage, I think. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. you know, at that time, these people that were even participating in the debates were so removed from those classes of people that they were sure were inferior. Again, you take a look around you now, and despite pockets of thinking that still resemble that, it's just truly remarkable how different things are. But at the same time, as as disturbing as these questions being posed might be to us now, there is an argument to be said that these questions being posed is what led to the progress that got us to where we are now. So for example, on a question of are women intellectually inferior to men, you do obviously not just have the side that is positing that, but you have the opposition side as well that says in my little book, the smaller opportunities of women need to be considered. The great achievements that they've made in many fields, prizes are often won in fair competition. We have great mathematicians such as Mrs. Somerville, Mrs. Browning. We have George Eliot among writers, Francis Willard and Florence Nightingale as reformers. So, you know, even a hundred years ago, we can say, oh my gosh, this is horrible. They were asking these questions. But a lot of those arguments on the negative side mirror the type of empowering rhetoric that we use today to put these things to bed. This reminds me of a discussion I've been having in a leadership course I'm taking right now, because one of the topics we're discussing is conflict. And everybody who comes from a traditional Western education is like conflict bad. It means people are mad at each other and it's inherently negative. And I brought up that conflict is neutral, that it can be good or bad, but conflict is the breeding ground for progress, that it is the area in which ideas are forged and assumptions are challenged and agreement can be sought too. So actually having these debates probably did lead to a lot of changes that wouldn't happen otherwise if we feared conflict. Did you tell them that if they're interested in conflict, they could check out the Indubitably podcast anywhere you find your podcasts? I did not because I, once again, I'm not totally sure I want coworkers knowing what I say here. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, along with that, Josh, just the fact that it's being posed as a question is advanced from it just being declared as a statement. So posing the question about the capabilities of women, while it may seem regressive and is regressive now, at that time, it was still better than just the assumption, for example, that the capabilities of women was beyond debate. Mm, And that's definitely something that is new. That concept is new. And you could tell based on some of the arguments we've already read, just with the flying machines, where the language of a lot of the arguments in this book are, men did this, or can man accomplish this? Having this debate included in the book does show the origins of the kind of thinking that's led us to where we are right now. So kind of a crazy question when you read it, but then you think about it and sort of a necessary groundwork to get us to to where we've gotten. So we've definitely heard about arguments that would be kind of abhorrent to have now. We've heard about arguments that seem largely settled, but are there any arguments that you found in this book that might actually pertain to questions we still have now? I have. I think that there's some debates that are timeless and we are still having in almost the exact same form that they did have 100 years ago. And potentially we will be having these debates 100 years from now. And then there's other topics in this book that might have changed a little bit, but I think the core idea is still relevant and applicable to today's society. So I think we've got three different categories that we can talk about. The first one is questions about societal institutions. The second is questions about the human condition. And the third would be 
to quote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. And with that, let's begin with the discussion on societal institutions and how this book addresses some controversies that may still be relevant now. Why don't we start where the book starts? Which, um, interestingly, topic number one is, should expeditions to search for the North Pole be encouraged? Okay, that one, maybe not so much. But the next three pertain to marriage. And I think that that's interesting that the subject they start with after the North Pole, of course, is marriage. Does that lead us to think that they've, I don't know, prioritized that as a building block of society or that sort of question was forefront in their minds 100 years ago? I'm actually quite surprised that that would have been a controversial topic at the time, considering it's only been pretty recently that the idea of marriage being a necessary social institution has been deconstructed. I would assume the default, even 100 years ago, would be, yeah, you absolutely get married. What of it? Perhaps maybe to at least some extent, it was a result of women having a more autonomous place in American life that was precipitating these kinds of questions, which is nice. They ask three specific questions in this book. The first one is just straight up, is marriage a failure? The second one, does marriage increase the happiness of the persons married? And then the third one, I suppose related to that, is should divorce laws be made more stringent? What do they mean by, is marriage a failure? Wouldn't it come down to each individual marriage needing to be evaluated? Or are they talking about the institution as a whole? What they say here is, this is usually treated in a semi-serious manner, fair enough, and as implying a doubt as to whether the married or single are most happy and useful. And they say that number three, does marriage increase the happiness of the persons married, is a better form of the question. So, does marriage increase the happiness of the persons married? Uh, is that settled? Is that still a debate we're having? I think so. Yeah, that's a pretty big debate happening currently as research is starting to come out about the inverse happiness that happens in marriage compared to what people expect it to be. There's this cultural myth that women want to be married and that's their ultimate purpose, blah, blah, blah. It's where they're going to get all the happiness from. But it turns out they actually like die sooner than they would if they stayed unmarried. Meanwhile, married men have like higher life satisfaction than most anybody else. I think what's interesting here is on the negative side, so they would be saying marriage does not increase the happiness of persons married. 100 years ago, they were saying the frequency of divorce proves unhappiness. This is something we hear a lot now looking at divorce rates. Still more to the purpose are the miseries that come to one of the parties through the intemperance or crime of the other. Many marriages are made for caprice, for money, or from mistakes as to character and diminish happiness. These all sound like the exact same arguments I hear right now when we discuss whether or not marriage is, is a valuable institution. Yeah, just with fancier words. It really depends on how you approach the institution of marriage, I think is probably pretty key in determining whether or not that's a failure. If, for example, fooling around in the barnyard resulted in accidentally impregnating somebody, and that's the reasons for engaging in the practice, then there's really nothing beforehand that would indicate that after being married, you'd be any happier. And in fact, you'd probably be worse off. It's interesting. I, I, I think a lot of the same questions are being asked today. Divorce rates have only gone up. But it's also interesting to note that divorce rates are at their highest for those people who get married in their 20s contemporarily. 
but most people got married in their 20s in the early 1900s. I think that that's probably germane to looking at institutions like marriage and asking, is this something that has a net benefit for people? I, I would argue at the time the book was written, it was pretty fundamental to whether or not a woman could like feed herself in a lot of cases. There was an increasing drive for women to be educated and get in the workforce, but still, you know, it was in the 1970s before women could have credit cards that were in their own name. <laughs> like the financial independence of women has been a really slow march and being able to leave an unhappy marriage or just to never get married in the first place was a very privileged opportunity for very few women at the time. With those kind of advances, though, in terms of balancing out the power dynamic, at least between genders, why do you think that this is still such a big and relevant debate now as it was 100 years ago? Doesn't it seem like it should be more settled now? Like, yeah, you've got the ability to get divorced. There's less religious connotation running around now, more empowerment by society, more autonomy. Get divorced if you want to get divorced. I think that there's been a pushback to our expanding definition of what marriage means. There's the traditionalists that are staunch with the, it's a man and a woman and it's forever. And then there's the, maybe uh, you can have more than one partner, or maybe you can marry someone of the same sex. And that really uh, threatens a lot of traditionalism. And that might get everybody digging their heels in a bit more. Another reason might be, and this is an argument in the affirmative of the question of whether or not marriage increases the happiness of persons in my book. It says the state of marriage has the warrant of scripture and of the example of the majority of mankind. And I think the scripture thing is interesting because that leads us to the next societal institution that's covered pretty extensively in this book, and that would be religion. What they do a lot here is they compare religion to secular institutions, something we've done in the podcast, by the way, if you haven't heard our Does God Exist episode, where we ask the question that they ask in this book, which is, has religion conferred greater benefits on the world than science? And I, Carl, this is probably of interest to you as a clinical development oncology scientist. Did I get it right? I just came here to talk about dams, man. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's a question that could be answered as an aside in a podcast celebrating 100 years of questions, you know, whether or not religion has contributed more to human society than science. I know that it's frowned upon to sit the fence in debate, but I do think that they lie in separate realms. Science, for a lot of folks, will never fulfill the spiritual dimension of their lives the way that something like a religious belief would be, even if it's just broad spirituality. I do think that when you look at it as a power of destruction, I would say that religion has probably, on balance, caused more misery or death or pain than science has. But then at the same time, you could look at the weapons of mass destruction that have killed quite literally millions of people in a time span that was unknown to human memory prior to their invention. So in terms of destruction, I think I would probably say, given the fact that it had a 2,500 to 3,000 year start, if we're talking Abrahamic at least religions, then probably religion has, a, has the upper hand in that regard. I also think that depends on how you define science, though, right? If you count spears and bows and arrows and technological advancements under science, that was the science of the time. But it's interesting. So we're having the same debate now. You know, when we put forward that episode on whether or not God exists, we weren't looking at this book and deriving it from the book. That's a pretty common 
debate that's still happening. So I think this is another one where it seems in terms of the questions of our societal institutions as a whole, not much has changed in the last hundred years. Well, it's going to be an enduring question until we can prove something that up till now has been pretty unprovable. Mm -hmm. So in a hundred years from now, I'm anticipating that'll still be a debate that, that they have. Okay. How about the next debate that they cover under this category of religion is, is the Bible the best textbook of morals? Still relevant? I think Richard Dawkins brings up an interesting point in this regard. Obviously, in the Bible, and in particular, the Old Testament, if we're talking about the Christian Bible, there are morals that have been misconstrued to be something that they're not. Like, for example, the book of Leviticus was not meant for mass consumption. It was meant for a warlike group of monks, not unlike a military. But at the same time, even beyond that, uh, there's certainly things that would never fly or pass a litmus test of morality today, right? Stoning to death individuals that have been unfaithful or that are attracted to the same sex, so on. It goes down the line. But I do agree with Richard Dawkins in saying that really we have in the Western world a Christian morality that came from that book. He's so interested in this idea. In fact, he's lightened his tone. He says he's, of course, an atheist, but he's a Christian secularist, right? Or a Christian atheist, because so much of our value structures have been defined by that book and that there's plenty of it, whether or not you believe it's just fairy tales or not. I'm wondering if being ubiquitous is the same thing as being the best, though. It, it's just everywhere. <laughs> it uh, has a very strong advocacy of all of the people who believe that it is the best book. They suggest in this book, one of the arguments that says, yes, the Bible is the best textbook, is no other book can give any real sanction to morality. It covers the whole ground of morals and teaches with authority and not, quote, not as the scribes. It teaches morals as applied and illustrated by examples. It furnishes one perfect moral example, meaning I'm assuming Jesus, of course. In the last hundred years, do you think this still holds true? I don't, I don't think there's another textbook that's been put out that is a comprehensive overview of what morality should be. What about Eastern religions? I haven't read any of these things. I've never read the Bible or any other scriptures. So I really can't speak to the, the morality of anything, but there's a very moral society across most of the world. And most of the world didn't have the Bible for a very long period. Mm -hmm. Do they not have moral guidance from literature as well? And that's the argument in the negative here. Much of the Bible is adapted to another race and age. The Jewish laws cannot apply in our changed circumstances. The majority of the human race do not accept the Bible. And for them, it has no authority. Some of the commandments seem above possibility. A textbook should be accepted by all persons and be understood by all alike. So a hundred years later, the response that you come to, Kelly, is the same response that they have in this book. I would say this is another timeless debate. I'm not sure. Do you think we're any closer to an answer on this? Or do you think this is just going to keep going on <laughs> in perpetuity? You have 2.x billion Christians in the world today. You almost have 2 billion Muslims. And even on the largest continent, or rather, you know, a continent that is typically trying to outpace China's most populous, you have Hinduism with Bhagavad Gita as its central text that touts the same examples, or at least similar examples applied to their culture for what morality is. So no, I don't think it's going anywhere. Mm. 
Well, we're also facing a society that's becoming increasingly secular. In a hundred years, we may have a very diminished presence of religion in society. And morals will probably still exist in some regard, but from what source? And that's the last question that they ask here. They they do take a second to examine rights related to freedom of religion or atheism, which I suppose similar to the questions of gender equality is an interesting thing to be debating. I, I suppose this was the first point in time where they started questioning the Christian nature of the country, even though, yes, I understand it was founded with a separation of church and, and state, realistically not so much. But they asked the question here, ought persons be excluded from civil employment on account of any religious belief or disbelief? I can tell you that it, that debate is still happening today. You can read in the newspaper at any given time, some local municipalities courthouse refusing a clerk there refusing to give a marriage certificate to a same-sex couple and in that case that religious motivation is obviously a detriment to the role they play and probably should have been a disqualifying factor and expanding it beyond civil employment in the medical field too there's a question of whether or not medical professionals should have to provide procedures that they might be religiously against yeah christian scientists and their uh, general malaise about medication writ large is problematic, especially in emergency situations. The inability for some Jehovah's Witnesses to receive blood because of some of those same elements, or a doctor that was raised in that particular faith that has an approach that's anything other than evidence-based and immediate the way that it should be in those situations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely still a germane and, and prevalent point. But those questions are a lot more specific than the overarching question in this book, which is, ought they be excluded on account of any religious belief or disbelief. This one, I think we've pretty much settled that the answer is no. And we do try to give protections to people in terms of recourse against employees that do discriminate based on religious beliefs. The things you're talking about are very specific actions, very specific cases. So I do I do think this one is largely settled. There might be some remnants we're trying to work through, but for the most part, maybe we're past this one. No argument there. Yeah. Ha. We finally found one that we figured out in the last hundred years. <laughs> What's interesting here is there's there's actually no question on whether or not God exists, which we had the episode on. They're, they're very specific questions, but each of those questions sort of presupposes the existence of God and then asks what should we should do about it. So I think that's interesting. Everything that they do cover falls under this umbrella of the divide between church and state. So I think that brings us to the next category, which is moving from church to our state and questions about how do we define or structure our governments and nations. I'm anticipating that a lot of the arguments center around things we've already established as being good in places like the United States, like democracy and representative government. So I'm kind of interested to see if it goes beyond that. No, no, you're pretty much right. <laughs> the first question that they ask is, is republicanism the best possible form of government? And they say that the affirmative will be supported by the example of our own country with its wonderful prosperity. So there are definitely some some very serious throughout this book, God and country vibes going on. To be fair, wealth inequality was probably a little less intense back then <laughs> compared to now. Absolutely. And culturally and ethnically, it was a lot more homogenous. So there wasn't nearly the amount of problems that we see with the Republican structure. And by that, I mean having a republic today. 
Yeah, I guess if everybody looks the same and thinks the same, it's real easy to vote on issues, isn't it? It is. You know, obviously the Nordic countries are internationally known for all sorts of things, but having spent some significant meaningful time in Denmark, I, of course, admire the infrastructure and the social programs there, but it is hard not to notice that everyone around you is highly homogenous. So the ideological differences in Denmark are on a much smaller interval. And I can't help but wonder if that's because they largely look the same and had a similar upbringing in terms of a monoculture that we no longer have here. So since they've all experienced the same thing from the same perspectives, there is no inner city poor that is divided along race or gender, for example, that they're able to have much more civilized discussions about similar problems. When it comes to countries aside the United States, most of them have a substantially longer history. And even if they were not as ethnically homogenous, which most of them are, they just have so much more established tradition and ingrained values within their society. And you have to remember that at the time this book was written, it was still pretty close to when the Civil War happened. There were probably people writing this book who had living memory of the war or very close post-war experiences as well. And that was a very divisive time. You're both spot on. If we move to the next couple of questions under this category of country, they both do deal with who should be included in the system. One of the questions is on a sort of economic level, functionally, should there be an educational qualification for voting? And the second one, maybe more pertinent to what you were both just discussing, should all races and nations be equally eligible to citizenship in the United States? So I think this book is written at sort of the, again, the origin of where we're at now, where they were asking the question of, do we want to become a nation sort of defined by diversity, or do we want to follow, I suppose, the Nordic route and keep ourselves homogenous? And obviously that question has been answered, but how we deal with the difficulties that have come from the answer is something we're dealing with today. That's absolutely true. At that point in time, when you look at things being homogenous in that way, I can see the argument that you just made, Josh. But I do think that there is at least a downside to this idea that we have no educational requirements for voting. And that's that by definition, then the lowest common denominator becomes the target audience that you're trying to capture and makes the entire system very susceptible, especially here in the United States, to very simplified, overly so campaign slogans. You have people that are unfamiliar with the details and become issue voters, one issue voters and whatnot. And that there would be a level of sophistication in the way that people approach the politics with educational requirements attached to their ability to vote. This one might, if anything, have become more relevant as time goes on. Their argument for why there should be educational qualification mirrors basically what you just said, Carl, the perils of ignorance. Without reading, a man may be easily deceived and is always dependent upon others for his information. Ignorant voters are easily influenced and are more open to corrupt influences. And I think, you know, my mind is just screaming fake news at me over and over again as I read this. Well, there's two ways to guarantee that your voting populace is educated. One is to exclude everybody who's not sufficiently educated. Or two might be to do a better job educating people. This country is failing at that pretty, pretty hard. Educate people. Nah. 
<laughs> you and these crazy ideas, Kelly. I'm just a socialist who believes in CRT. Funny you bring up socialism. That leads us to our last subject under societal institutions, and it is your favorite, capitalism. It's not my favorite, and you know it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fine. Maybe it's more accurate. We can call it socialism instead. Capitalism versus socialism. Number one under this is resolved that men, of course, would be more happy if private property were abolished and all things held in common. Hell yeah. <laughs> I think this is an interesting one because it's sort of a debate that was, quote, settled. I think there was at least 60 years there where everybody accepted that capitalism was the way to go. And now this question of maybe we went too far with it, maybe we should start considering socialism again is certainly coming back in a, in a pretty big way. If it is, I wouldn't know. I have the American capitalistic pursuit just ingrained in me. I was raised in it. We were and we're raised to celebrate it. We're raised to celebrate accumulation of wealth and things and houses and properties. And typically those people that can afford and acquire those things seem pretty happy. And it's hard for me to imagine in the United States, even applying things that we see in Canada, which is not that different culturally. It, it's just really rough to be able to envision that being overlaid against the American society chasing the American dream. There was a period of American capitalism where it seemed like there was a promise to it, that things were actually pretty decent for the middle class, that people who were not middle class had an opportunity to become middle class through working in the trades and not necessarily having an educational background even. And that got destroyed with an increasingly industrialized, increasingly global society. The lowest common denominator was actively sought in capitalism and excluded everybody who couldn't contribute. So yeah, like 60 years is probably the most it could sustain. I don't think it can ever get back to that point again, unless there's a fundamental shift in the world. So there was definitely a period of time where this did seem settled. The question was asked in 1914, apparently, and then capitalism pretty much, quote, answered the question. But now I think a lot of the rhetoric mirrors what we've got in the book, where they say, in defense of socialism, the evils of unequal fortune, the bitterness of poverty and want, the oppression that abounds in the world, there's enough property in the world to make all comfortable if equally distributed. Why should one child be born with millions, another without shelter and food? This sounds a lot like Occupy Wall Street. This sounds a lot like the criticism of people like Jeff Bezos which if you've listened to our podcast, you know we're not the biggest fan of. Uh, a lot of this is coming back in a real strong way. You can say it. It sounds like Kelly. <laughs> I mean, I'm on you with some of this yeah. stuff. I just have to provide. <laughs> we're committed to providing all views on all debates. So I let you have the view you like better. This is an interesting one because the rest of them have either remained relevant or become irrelevant. This one seems to be cyclical. It might go away, come back, go away, come back. I think it's going to stick around unless there's some rebalancing that happens. And the only rebalancing I see as possible is by having, even in a quote-unquote capitalist society, socialist measures. Marxist revolution. One thing I think we should recognize is that all of these societal questions are things that are reliant on the quality of the individuals that make up society. All right, we can't ask questions about how to structure society at a large without knowing, okay, who are the individuals that we're using to construct said society. And that brings us to 
the second overarching category in the book, which is the human condition. And this one I think is neat. A lot of the questions they were asking at the time seem to be questions about people's character. What does it mean to be a good person or a good member of society? For example, one of the questions that they ask is resolve that a quick and fiery temper is an element of strength rather than a weakness in character. Very masculine undertones to that one. Well, having a quick and fiery temper is definitely something that helps you get on like primetime cable news. So there's an element of it being valued in society. Mm -hmm. They say here that no evil, no evil, very bold claim, can be greater than an easy indifference. A high temper is a strong motive force. Most great men have possessed such a temper. That's like the premise of Boondock Saints. Indifference bad, vengeance good. Boondock Saints, but also some pretty legitimate civil rights figures have pointed to the indifference of, we've brought up race a lot so far, the indifference of white men is one of the greatest evils that exists in society. That's true, especially when I think the heart of that statement is really just passion, right? It's it's not necessarily, do you believe it's temperament as in having an actual temper or the temper as in like the tenor of somebody? That is an interesting question. So a lot of when we read this book, one of the things we need to consider is, yeah, just the differences in language. So I wonder if they mean temper in terms of anger abusiveness, how we might think of it, or temper in terms of passion? I think probably that can also be bifurcated according to gender, even if we accept the premise that having a very commanding and authoritative and confident approach to how you conduct business or interact with people like friends and family in your life. If you're a male, that's actually respected and considered to be something that opens up doors or that allows you to more easily progress through your situation, whether it's social or business. And if you're a woman, that tends to shut those same doors that it opens for men because you're considered mean or crazy or what have you. So at the time, they were debating about the virtues of temper. They were also debating questions about whether or not it is ever a good policy to deviate from the truth. Obviously, a pretty timeless controversy. Sure. White lies, definitely. To make a child stop asking you incessant questions, definitely. Um, for people's own good. I'd say that there are definitely things that qualify as being a good policy in some circumstances, which is the question that it's asking. It's not to always be dishonest. It's, is there ever a good reason to be dishonest? And sure. Yeah, I would agree with that in general. I think that adhering to the truth, especially in important matters, is of course a good thing to do. It's virtuous. And actually, if nothing else, then sheds light on the way that things really are, which is knowledge. But I also think that it is also true that just like Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness, or Icarus, you can fly too close to the sun. And the absolute truth of life, meaning, and the universe is that there is none, and that that knowledge can actually damage the human mind. Do you both think, though, as opposed to these particular questions, do you think that just in general, a person's character is still something that we really think about. They were there's multiple questions in this book that follow the same sort of format, you know. Does this make you a good person? Does this make you a better person? Do we consider that really so much anymore or is this something we've kind of moved beyond examining? 
I think we do in some contexts that we won't be able to ever put aside representative democracy being part of it. We make sure that people are not out there talking out both sides of their mouth and performing one way, but promising something different when it comes to core ethical questions. Sure. But I wonder, it seems to me people have moved on to care more about what they look like on social media or how they, what their image is and how they're portrayed to the world, maybe more so than their actual substance. Maybe I'm jaded, but I don't think that people honestly ask themselves these questions anymore, as opposed to how can I look like I am these things rather than how can I actually be these things? We ascribe so much of what people present to their character, no matter what their character actually is. We have an inability to separate those things. Josh, I would actually take the opposite position of you. I would say that we are more invested in what people perceive our character to be than ever. It's just taken on different forms. And I think the things that were probably bad 50 years ago, like vanity, have been amplified. Of course, social media has made that a bigger part of how people perceive our character to be. We are very interested in how people perceive us and the way we move through the world. I, I do think that we're interested in people's character. Fair enough. Fair enough. We've got questions about character, maybe more, maybe less relevant nowadays than 100 years ago. The other questions that they covered pretty extensively were looking at the hobbies of people. They talked a lot about tobacco. Is the use of tobacco a vice? Is devotion to fashion a greater evil than the tobacco habit? Interesting comparison there. They also talked about gambling, and they talked about one other hobby, but I'm going to save that one and leave you guys in suspense for a second. What do you guys think about tobacco and gambling? Is gambling a worse evil than intemperance was the question they asked. I don't care what other people do with their money. <laughs> if they want to waste it like that, that's fine. For me, that's a question of proportionality. So if we're talking about things like tobacco, is a cigar here or there worse than, for example, gambling in Vegas? It's really just about how much you do of one versus the other and whether or not that causes harm. I guess evil would need to be defined for me in order for me to answer that. Mm. This one seems to be, y'all Y'all were worried about stuff that doesn't really matter back then. Nowadays, it's sort of like, eh, you live your best life. The real evil, though, that they discussed that I thought was pretty fascinating was not tobacco or gambling, though. It was, bum, 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 the novel. Is the great amount of novel reading at the present day an evil? Those damn books kids are reading too much nowadays. <laughs> I mean, if more people reading more is bad, I don't want to be good, right? So if that's evil, I don't want to be on the light side. No, I absolutely disagree that that's bad in any way, shape, or form. I think that imagination and articulance and views of the world and the way that you're able to express yourself and connect with somebody to achieve shared meaning would all be benefited by people reading more. Do you think was this was just their version, though, of like video games and screen time and social media? I would say so. I feel like that was just a proxy for idleness, that if you are reading a book, you're not mucking out the horse stalls or sitting in prayer, painting the fence, <laughs> painting the fence or conning other people into painting the fence. That's a reference from a novel, which that's true. Apparently is bad. <laughs> Evil to read. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. true. 
I think that's well said, Kelly. I, I think that probably, yeah, that was considered an idle distraction that wasn't contributing directly to the benefit of your family or yourself. I think that the number one argument for reading novels and the benefit of reading novels is it gives us a way to consider our last category of questions here, which is the ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. So this little book, it's actually very small. I'll take a picture of it and we'll post it on our socials for people to see. But this little book does ask some very big questions. And one of them that I think is still relevant, interesting to talk about is, is the world growing morally better? What do you guys think? Is this a question that we've gotten closer to settling in the last hundred years? Do you think if the people who were asking this question a hundred years ago were to see society now, do you think that they would feel as though the world has grown morally better or not? No, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I think they would see nothing but heathens and, and masochists according to the old world order. I agree. The The absence of religion, the promiscuity of society, the way that politicians are so overtly money hungry, all of those things sicken me. And I grew up in it. I think that if I was around 1914 and I saw this, I would be very concerned. Well, let me tell you both what they were looking for as moral bettertude. Carl, I just make up words on this podcast. So, you know, you're going to have to roll with it. Mm. They were looking for evidence in the disappearance or decline of evils once great, slavery or gambling. Wars are now less cruel and restricted in range of evils by more consideration for non-combatants, the wounded and prisoners. The poor, blind, etc. are better cared for. Benevolent institutions are multiplied. Punishments are less cruel and more directed to reform the offender. Benevolence follows great fires and other calamities more quickly than in old times. So th these were the reasons they gave for why they believed the world was growing morally better. Do you think those things have continued or do you think they're wrong about some of those considerations? I actually think that when looked at from the broadest stroke, that that's true, even though it doesn't seem like it, especially here in America. This is the most peaceful age of humanity so far. There are less wars. When they're conducted, they tend to be quicker. There's no less violent way to die on a battlefield. But at the same time, less and less people have been lost. There are more benevolent institutions. There's never been more bodies that exist solely for the contributions to charity, as there are now. More people are, and especially in other places of the world, given access to technologies that make their life easier and better in the middle class. And it's never been more possible for people with small means to have access to just about unlimited information. So I think when you're looking at it from the perspective of contributions to people's lives, their livelihoods, what they do, how they live, literally living, food, access to resources and whatnot, I think we have gotten to be a more moral population of organisms. I think that spiritually, like we were talking about before, in other ways that are social, I think probably the argument could be fairly made if you accept the predicate that that was more moral at that time, that yeah, it's a barn fire right now. The next question they asked that I guess is related to what your answer was there, Carl, is they question whether or not we were coming to a reign of universal peace. So I suppose definitely related to the question of is the world growing morally better if war 
and the lack thereof is one of the stipulations, one of the ways they use to measure that. The next question that they discussed was, will we reach a point where there is universal peace? No, absolutely not. If you thought that religion was a very strong basis for war, then you haven't seen wars based on resources, access to water, food, territory. So I don't think that that's the case. I think it's probably pretty well settled. If you talk to most people above the age of 12 or 10, is the world a good place to exist in? The answer would probably be that it's rough going. So I don't see wars or the world in any sense from that perspective getting any better. There does exist a possibility that the way that the world is leaning with connectedness and economic ties, that eventually like McDonald's diplomacy is going to probably reign supreme. And in the interest of making sure nobody compromises their wealth, there might be less conflict. But that's a very tenuous piece. That is a piece born of fear of losing what you have. I don't think that that is what they're intending in 1914 to predict about the future. All right, well, let's take this to its logical conclusion then. And the last question we'll pull out of this book is number 138, for those of you that care, resolved that the signs of the times indicate the approaching end of the world. So it sounds like them all didn't think that us all would even come to exist, but that potentially the world was going to end. Do know that the world is going to be swallowed by the sun at some point. That that's <laughs> inevitable. <laughs> I think that might be a little longer than what they meant by approaching. Mm. But we're having the same debate now. Now it's climate change and whether or not we've reached the point of no return there. I think about this a lot. I can't help but think again, not knowing anything about the authors, that at that time maybe they were thinking more of a religious or spiritual Armageddon. But then shortly after that was the literal precipice of. Cuban Missile Crisis and nuclear annihilation, that we became very close to ending ourselves. And now you're exactly right. Global warming, it's slower than any particular missile crisis, but it's more pernicious. It would be more global, unintended. Do you think that we have the capability of navigating all of these climate catastrophes, the way that we consume, the number of people that exist, the ways that wars and what wars are conducted for? It's a legitimate question. Do I think that we're nearing that? I hate to sound like a fatalist, but I do. If you consider humanity having been around for 10,000 years, yes. I think that we're reaching a very unique part of that history where the mechanisms of mass destruction are more tenuous than they have ever been. I wonder, so this book was printed, like we said, in 1914, and World War I began in 1914. So depending on exactly when this was all written, I'd be curious to know exactly what the state of the world was, you know, as the authors put pen to paper. Do you think that a, a culture or a society on the precipice of the First World War has a greater claim to this worry about the end of the world approaching? Or do you think that us living now, where war might not be, maybe with nuclear weaponry, but might not be the end of the world we're concerned about, but rather climate change and overpopulation, et cetera, is the concern. Do you think us or them had a greater claim to this worry about the approaching end of the world? They probably had a degree of hope that we don't. Because even when wars happened, peace was the conclusion and lives got back to normal. And even 
the post-war eras were, you know, so great. And we have not lived in a post-war era basically probably ever in our adult lives. And we have coupled with that the the amount of international tension that exists, the environmental concerns. And we're seeing so many people, especially in countries like the United States and other parts of the world, just choose not to have children rather than fix what they have no power to fix. So we're putting our hands up and saying, like, we have no means of of mitigating this anymore. We don't want to subject another generation to this. So peace out, humanity. (laughs) Like, it's, it's, it's over. A lot of people have basically given in to the fact that this is on a downward slide. Well, speaking of hope, let's go ahead and end on that optimistic note. <laughs> so we've uh, spent the episode looking backwards over the last hundred years and discussing how relevant that is to today, looking forward a little bit and seeing what we think might or might not be happening in the next hundred years. And uh, who knows, maybe maybe not in a hundred years, but maybe in the next 20 years, we will be able to uh, have Carl back on to do our 21st anniversary special and see how many of these things are still relevant, how many we were correct about, what we got totally wrong, and how silly we feel about some of the debates we're having today. I 100% plan on coming to the next invite with a cybernetic arm at the very minimum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe people will be listening to the podcast at that point with uh, brain implants. We'll be living in a virtual fishbowl, just something that holds oxygen around our heads because the atmosphere will have been completely depleted. But still having debates about the nature of society, the nature of humanity, and the ultimate questions of life, the universe, and everything. And you can hear all of those debates still 20 years from now, (laughs) hopefully, if we keep going on indubitably. Carl, thank you so much for joining us. Your insight and how much you agreed with me is very much appreciated. Great minds think alike, (laughs) but also thank you very much for the invite. It's been a lot of fun to chew the cud and talk about things that are more elevated and philosophical. It's been a while. So thank you. Thank you so much, Carl. And thank you for those of you that have stayed with us for this entire episode. And those of you that have been with us since the beginning of this journey a, a year ago. I suppose the biggest thing we may have learned over the last year is that people are actually interested in in what we we do here. And that has been a really valuable experience to see all of you join us in these conversations. And we definitely appreciate it. A year is a long time. And we put, I guess, breaking the fourth wall a little bit, about 12 hours a week into the podcast. And that's definitely not something, at least on my end, I probably would have been willing to commit to if we didn't get the kind of response and and interaction that we have from all of you that listen to the show. It's very cool to have an experience where we had this idea for a project and we actually did it. Mm -hmm. We saw it through and we're continuing to do it and we're looking forward to continuing it in the future. Yeah, it's really cool to see, you know, not just our subscriber count go up, but more than that, to just be able to engage with all of the listeners. And that's from comments and feedback on the episodes we produced, ideas for new episodes. For those of you who we know in person, conversations that are sparked by the content that we put out. To to me, that's probably one of the most fulfilling aspects of taking on this project. Just 
hearing somebody say, I listened to whatever episode and be really excited to talk about it. I, I don't know. It just feels feels good. It does feel good, except for when my friends text me and say that you were right on something and I wasn't. That I could do without hearing. Thank you. <laughs> well, let me think. We've done 52 episodes and you've got four or five friends. So that's probably happened about 240 times. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you keep believing that. Before we get too mushy here, uh, again, we just wanted to put out a thank you to everybody. And um, hopefully, uh, if you're willing, we're going to keep putting out episodes. And we'd love it if you kept subscribing, rating, reviewing, and engaging with us. Bring us ideas. Come on as a guest. Talk to us on the social medias. Uh, We're here for it all. We would really enjoy having our listeners help shape the next 52 episodes with us. We're looking forward to it. And we'll see you next week. Episode 53, start of year two. Woohoo!